Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're going to pick up in Matthew 26, uh, so we're going to dig into it this week. Verse 31 is where we're going to pick up, where Jesus predicts that, that his disciples are going to betray him or deny him. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So Matthew provides a sequence of events that each have something to do. I think when you stack up the events of chapter 26, it looks a lot like a plan of salvation. But the disciples have to go through this process just like every other believer. And they start with this idea that they're good enough and that they have everything under control and that they're fine. And that's where we lead off with these verses. Um, it comes off the Last Supper. Judas went off to betray them. And then at the end of the chapter, it says they went off to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives seems to be um, kind of this location where apparently Judas knew that Jesus would pray here a lot. So they're at the house and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. It's a nice, cool night. And Jesus just got done explaining the new covenant. There's this plan of a new covenant under Jesus Christ. He invites his disciples into it. They break bread together. They drink of the cup together. Um, and, they, and then Judas uh, is gone and is off to betray them. And then Jesus just inter interjects this Zechariah 13 reference of the, the shattering of the, 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 the flock. Imagine the stark contrast. Here's a plan of salvation. Here's a new covenant. And, as, and they walk out the door and they're hiking up to Mount Olive and he just kind of stops and turns to him and says, you're all going to betray me. Like, get ready for that. And you're all, essentially, the, the Zechariah 13, 7 is the reference that he's making there. And he says, after I've been raised, verse 32, they know that's going to happen. And he knows that his disciples are going to stumble when that happens. That there's going to be a falling short that happens. The stumbling means the disciples don't get little halos when we paint pictures of them. They're normal human beings. And they, have, they, they fall short just like everybody else does. All have fallen short and come short of the glory of God. And the disciples have to do that too. They have to fall short, or else we turn them into saints. Oops, I, I think some parts of the church have already done that. But the Bible doesn't present them that way. It presents them as people like you and me that make mistakes and fall short and stumble. They're not holier than thou. They're not that fancy. They're normal people. The goal here is for hope. Jesus doesn't want them to worry about the fact that they've sinned. How many people do we know where their sin becomes the shame that stops them from relationship with God? You're going to sin, but don't worry. I'm going to meet you up in Galilee. Like, I'm still going to be there. And Jesus won't leave us. Verse 33 says, Jesus, Peter says, I will never. So Peter has these words in the moment, but 
before long, it's going to be a little girl that gets, he's like too ashamed to proclaim Jesus to a little girl, right? No offense to little girls, but this is just a contrast of Peter having all this boldness right now. But when the stuff hits the fan, he's going to be in trouble. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, that's how he introduces his prophecies. Throughout the book of Matthew, when he starts with, assuredly, I say to you, he's predicting what's going to happen. And when he turns to Peter and says this, he's giving him a promise. You will deny me three times. The specificity here is the reason that Peter repents. Because Jesus was so specific in what would happen, when the rooster crows, it triggers something in his brain. It's an immediate recall. So the strikingness of what Jesus says now is the thing that, Je that people remember or Peter remembers later. And the same thing's true when we read the word. When we read what Jesus says and then we fall short or make mistakes, it's the word of God that comes in that reminds us that we're making a mistake. It's the thing we can't run from. It's the thing that makes us want to put up with other Christians is that Jesus' word draws us to him. Before the rooster crows, in Palestine, Romans called the, the, the noon to 3 p.m. The, the cock crow watch. And it's because during that time in the Middle East, that's when roosters would crow. So if Jesus is talking to them in the evening, that's because the day starts when dinner is eaten. Remember in Jewish culture? So that day going through the next day. So when we're sleeping, they, then the rooster crowing would be like before noon. We would say tomorrow. But Jesus says, that this night before the rooster crows, he's saying, before this day ends, from supper to supper, you're going to deny me. So that, that prediction comes, and as it happens, that's what's going to be. So it'll be the first crowing, right, probably right around noon, when that happens. I will not deny you, Peter makes that claim. Uh, so once again, Peter's denying Jesus' word. Jesus says, you will deny me. He says, you won't deny me. Same thing. Peter then has a situation here, like a lot of believers do. He accepts the cross. And Peter's not arguing the fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's arguing about his own ability to sin. Like, think about the difference here. Peter's grown in that he accepts that Jesus will die and be resurrected. No problem. Lots of people accept that concept and call themselves Christians. But, Jesus, but Peter's claim here is, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. The problem for Peter right now is he's got to accept that he will sin. And it's his own sin that he needs to understand and embrace. And as part of salvation, that has to happen. People have to understand why they need Jesus. And so said all the disciples. I'm going to be in Peter's defense here. Peter's not alone. Matthew singles him out because he leads the way. But all of the disciples, in this sentence, Matthew's admitting his own guilt. Matthew is one of the disciples that denied Jesus' word here. So it's all of them. Peter just gets the detail. Verse 41, this is building up to the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They all want to be good people, but their flesh is, it's hard to do it. It's hard to make that happen. So all the disciples need to learn what their failure is. And until they learn what their failure is, they're continually going to have a magnetic pull to their own will until they recognize that their own will is the problem. So Jesus just lets it go. He doesn't argue with them. And he says, "Before I will go before you to Galilee. He's planting the seed of hope because when they come to the realization that he was right in the first place, then the words of salvation come alive. Then the words of hope start to happen. So in this first section, I'll just say step one in salvation or point number one 
is Romans 3.23. All have, fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even the disciples. Nobody is exempted from that thing. So even with a really good heart, Peter announces that he thinks his will is better than what Jesus just said. His word over God's word. And there's a problem there. So also note here that Matthew is weaving a contrast between Jesus and Peter. And he does this through the whole story. I think Matthew and Peter were good friends, brothers in Christ. I think this is part of how Peter talked when he told his testimony. So when, when Peter first read the book of Matthew, I don't think Peter had any problem with what he read. Like Peter's like, yep, that's me. And so Matthew's using this, I don't think, to put Peter down, but to, to use Peter's words as that he was kind of the head of the disciples when it came to spiritual issues. Not the financial pot, that was Judas. But this idea of just Jesus saying, relax and trust in me, and Peter denies that itself. I can't trust in you. Now Jesus prays, and Peter's going to fall asleep. So we, we still get this contrast between what they do. The spiritual battles of the Christian walk start with prayer. Verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, the sons of thunder. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. So the word Gethsemane in verse 36 is two Hebrew words kind of squished together. You know how we do that in language? The word gat and the word shemen, geshemini. The, the word gat means, this is really kind of weird, it means wine press. And shemini means of the oils or olive trees. So it's a wine press of oil trees, Gethsemane. Which is interesting because he just came off the, the communion in the New Covenant where he gave them wine and bread. And now he's coming to a place where the, that's called Gethsemane, the, the press of oils, the olive press. And oil throughout the Bible has been an image of the Holy Spirit. This is really quite appropriate. So in this walk, first understanding that you've fallen short of this, the, the, the glory of God, and then this idea of going into prayer in order to get the Holy Spirit to work on your heart. This picture of God as oil or the Holy Spirit is that the, the picture of the presence of the Spirit of God goes all the way back to Genesis 28. Oil gets used in anointing the priests, Exodus 29.7, Leviticus 18.12. Kings we see in 1 Samuel 10, um, that's how you anoint the king or when Saul gets anointed, when David gets anointed, 2 Samuel 2. It was used for, as a bright, to bring light to people, Exodus 27.20. From the menorah of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the oil was never supposed to run out. God's spirit never runs out. So they pass over the Kidron Valley. They're overlooking Jerusalem. There's olive trees all around them that are taken and crushed for their spirit. And from Bethany, we see Jesus keeps moving closer to the cross. And there's this image of his spirit getting crushed, Gethsemane, right there. How, how nasty is Judas that not only does he betray Jesus, but he betrays him while he's praying. Like, they probably ran to where the upper room was first because that's where Judas left them. And then as he's bringing the mob to come and get Jesus, they get to the upper room and it's empty and Judas knows exactly where to go. Oh, Jesus went off to pray. I know where to find him. And he, and he follows up. And so there's this delay here. But it seems like, um, and Luke twenty two thirty nine 39 adds the words as Jesus he was accustomed to. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he was accustomed to. 
kind of adding that point of this was a regular place that Jesus liked to pray with this beautiful view of the city. It's the view of Jerusalem we all see when we look online and we see we just Google search pictures of Jerusalem. It, that's the view from the Mount of Olives where you see the, well, uh, would have been the Jewish temple, not the big round gold dome in the middle, but would have been a beautiful Jewish temple and the sun would have been setting right over that. So there would have been a sunset, beautiful place to pray and a place to pray for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And this is where Judas chooses to attack. So there would have been a full moon. <laughs> the temple would have, work would have been underway uh, at this point after the day started. This would have started the day of sacrifice of the lamb. So there would have been noise in the city. They were not all going to sleep at this point. There would have been sounds of little sheep standing in a line. At, and they would have been over 200,000 sheep standing in a line. They would have all brought their sheep out to get killed. There would have been a river of blood flowing out of the temple under the full moon while this all happened. This is, and the noise from the city would have been distant, you know, when you're far away from it. But Jesus gets this moment to do spiritual warfare. This is the moment that comes. Verse 37, he's sorrowful and deeply distressed in the Greek. That is, they have multiple words for depressed or sad. This word means pressed upon or it's the greatest imagined sadness that one can have. Pressed upon to the point where you're physically weak. You're just absolutely overwhelmed. So the word here isn't just he's feeling down. It's that he's beyond the comfort of other people. There's just nothing left. Verse 33, Jesus says, my soul. Some argue that this is the spot where Jesus started to accept the sins of the world. They get put on him before he gets punished for them. So this point at which his soul starts getting pressed on, we're talking about an eternal soul taking on the sins of the world. So spiritually speaking, he, what he wants when he goes to pray is three disciples to just be there with him, just hang out. Sometimes mourning, people don't need help when they're mourning. They just need company, right? They don't want somebody to tell them how to fix it. They just have to deal with it. And, and to have somebody there is the, most, the best gift, and maybe the, the greatest gift you can give. So God gives hundreds of small opportunities to pray every day. God invites us to pray with everything we have, every anxiety and stress. And he models for us in his darkest time how to take that time to pray. Exceedingly sorrowful goes with an entire night of prayer. The more sorrowful you are, the more praying should happen. And he says, stay here and watch with me. Is the only time people would ask this is if Jesus felt like he was going to, I think, pass out. So this pressed upon wine press of oil on his spirit starts to press upon his spirit. And all he asks is just like, be here in case I pass out. This is an exhausting moment for him. A physically exhausting thing. Enduring this moment. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face. He actually does fall. And in that particular passage that falling on the face is probably an intentional he didn't just drop to his knees and went all the way to the ground we see people do that throughout the old testament it's just a position for prayer but he prays saying oh my father if it's possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will Je jesus is going to pray three times the first two we get the verses likely because some of the disciples were awake the third one we don't get the words that were used because they're probably all sleeping at that point so he prays, I think the victory of the cross was actually won here, not on the cross. 
And as humans, we've missed that little point. But Jesus, when he goes to battle, starts with prayer. And he, the prayer happens before the battle ever happens. So that idea of taking those opportunities to pray without ceasing puts us in position to battle whenever the battle comes at us, to be ready to defend. So it's an odd position of prayer today to actually lay prostate on the ground. Um, it is not an odd position in the first century. It just is this collapsing exhaustion in prayer. Verse 39, if it's possible, well, that's a, that's a, if it's possible, then that's not good. Well, if he, if it doesn't go to Jesus, who does it go to? Right? If it's possible, God doesn't deny his own character and will in doing this, but the physical death is the wage of sin. And Jesus is facing that physical death. It's horrible, but it's just, it's the right thing. Right? If God created us and then we sin against God, we should be uncreated. Right? There should be something that ends. The problem is he created eternal beings that don't end like he is in the image of God. So there's this idea of death that's just horrid. And I think it's horrid even to incarnate God. This death curse is something Jesus never encountered, but we encounter it all the time. We all know we're going to die. Like we live that way. And it, at like any sin, you actually get kind of used to it over time. Even atheists, though, when it comes to the death thing, even atheists cringe. When, like, you would think they wouldn't. Like, my dog doesn't get to think about death, right? If we truly aren't eternal beings and there's nothing to it and we're just, uh, you know, goo to the zoo to you, why does it matter if we die? Yet there's something in our spirit that shrinks away from death. We're terrified by it. And that's because we're eternal. We're not animals. Something in us knows that we'll live forever. So as Christians, we can face that even though it's a curse. We understand that curses can be forgiven. And as Christians, we don't mourn like other people mourn. One of our, our good friends, good old-time friends just passed away. And it, we got a phone call saying, hey, David passed. And it's horrible, but we just shared a moment of, but what a good man. Like he's in eternity. He's not mourning us from heaven. He's fine where he's at, but we mourn and miss those people that have left us. But we don't do it the same way the world does, where they think it's just the end. For Jesus, this is not natural. For us, it's natural to deal with death. It's not natural for Jesus. This is maybe the, the moment he's understanding he's got to experience something that only humans experience. So this is terrifying. Job 34.10, listen to me. You have understanding. Everyone knows that God doesn't sin. The Almighty can do no wrong. He defines the law. He can't break it. He can't undo his own will or it wouldn't be his will anymore. So this is an anguish that we, I think, just can't understand. We're not God. We don't know what sin feels like as a perfect being. We know what sin feels like because we've had it since we were kids and we wanted that candy, right? We've always had it, but Jesus hasn't. So let this cup pass. I'm going to dwell on the word cup. A cup is an allotment of a given duty throughout the Bible. And I want to give you just a couple examples of that. Verse 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, Gethsemane, and my cup runs over. Right? This idea. What is the cup? So it's a reference usually in the Old Testament to wrath and fury. It's this idea that there are wages to sin and that wages are contained in a kind of cup. And it isn't until the cup overflows that God brings the consequences for sin. 
So at some level, there's these periods where sin doesn't get punished because it's in a cup. Genesis 44, a cup gets used in Benjamin's bag, and then he has, there has to be a punishment for that. Psalm 11:6, upon the wicked, the rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. So the wrath gets contained in the cup. God's judgment is what we fill our cups with as we live our life. And we all have a cup that we got to drink from. Justice is to drink from the cup that we made. We filled it. Awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, Isaiah 51, 17. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the fury of his cup, you have drunk the dregs of the cup trembling and drained it out. These are the kinds of references we get to cups. So when Jesus says, may this cup pass from me, he didn't fill the cup. He didn't have to drink it. But it's getting put in front of him and God promises to take the cup himself so that it, it'll pass judgment from those that, that deserve it. So this image of cup is built throughout the Old Testament as a principle or as a theological idea. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus the Lord God of Israel said to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. At some point, all the nations of the world will pay for their sins. Right? And it's, it's something that's coming, it's promised, but praise God, those that are in God's family don't take the cup for themselves because he's going to take it. Psalm 116, 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to take that cup for my family. So my family's taken care of. So the cup of wrath in the wine press of oil lead to a new covenant with the spiritual blessings that come out of this pressure. And we can't lose sight of the bread and the wine now that the oil's coming. Uh, I'm going to read one more kind of longer prophecy around this. Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you, I will marry you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness that you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. Like there's justice that has to get paid. The earth shall answer with a grain and new wine and with oil. And then they, they shall answer Jezreel. And then, by the way, Jezreel is like on the way to Galilee. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. This is the plan. And it's been the plan from the beginning. As we go through Matthew, it's, I think that's Matthew keeps alluding to these things. So when Matthew uses or, or records this prayer that God's praying, it would have stood out to Matthew. Wait, what cup? What are you talking about, Jesus? And so he writes the prayer down. He records it because it's striking to the Jewish ear. He's going to take the cup. This fulfills all sorts of prophecies. This is God's will. And compare the will of God and Jesus right now to the humans who are all taking a nap, right? This is epic stuff happening in the history of the, in the universe, and the humans are napping. And they're sleeping on the job because they can't wake up. They're too tired. Not as I will, but as you will. This is a glimpse of, glimpse, glimpse of the faith that we should have. God, not my will, but yours. Not my will be done, but your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So as Jesus comes to earth and, and establishes all of these things, 
there shall be an answer at some point. But at this point, he's going to take his own family and make them his people, even the Gentiles. Everybody has a will. And sin is to take our will and choose it over God's will. Holiness is the opposite. Holiness is to take God's will instead of our will. The question is, okay, I got to do that in every situation, all day, all the time. And, and, and if you're saying got to, you got to pray about your will changing because it's not a got to, it's a get to. I get to do that in every situation all of the time? And the answer is yes. So God allows the opposing wills to happen. And then he shows us through Jesus how to pray for that. Lord, not your will, not my will, but yours. I have a will. I would prefer to not drink the cup of fury today. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, if I can avoid this, that'd be great. But you know what? I know your plan. I know your will. If I have to endure it, I'll endure it. Adam and Eve chose their own will. The new Adam, Jesus, chooses God's will. And that's the, that's the eternal difference. Everyone gets to choose which will they want to follow. Jesus takes God's wrath for us. It's a gift. It's the very definition of love. I love you. I'll take that on me. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Loving God is not salvation. Salvation is that God gave his son for our sins. It's a very different kind of gospel if you, but Matthew's teaching something, John's teaching something. All of the New Testament is trying to teach us that we have to be saved from our sin. That's salvation. Saved from what? Saved from us. So point number one, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Point number two, Jesus gave his word that he would take the sin from us. So this, again, there's the plan of salvation that Matthew's telling with this narrative right now. We have to accept Jesus' love and his gift for our sin. We have sinned. There's a way to not have to pay the price for that. And then we get to verse 40. Keeps going. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what could you not watch with me for one hour? What? <laughs> There's an exasperation to what Jesus says. What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Pray and watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember Peter just said he wouldn't betray Jesus, but now he's not busy praying that God will help him with that. So many people want to beat sin, but they don't bother to pray for that sin to be beaten. How do you think that's going to go for you? You think you have the power to overcome sin on your own without Jesus' Holy Spirit, without the oil, without the crushing of your will in the wine press? doesn't work that way. So Jesus, I think, is trying to teach Peter how to win his spiritual battles. As Peter just declared his will, Jesus is continuing to coach and teach Peter right up until the end. Watch and pray, verse 41, lest you enter into temptation. You say you're not. And I'm telling you that you have to be watchful and you have to pray or you will. That's the equation. So the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that's the thesis of this chapter. And again, a second time you went and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup can't pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice the slight change in his prayer. He doesn't even mention his own will anymore. If this cup can't pass away from me, it's like he's gotten his answer. I guess this is the way we got to go. And so he's aligning himself with each of these prayers uh, more and more closely to God's will. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. We know that feeling. So he left them. He went away again. And he prayed a third time, saying the same words. 
So this time Matthew doesn't write out the prayer, but we get this uh, chronology here that this might fit with the three watches of the night where Jesus came and checked in on him periodically throughout the night, but there's three different watches through the night. So when he says, can you watch with me? Maybe when he brought three people with him, it was Peter's turn on the first watch, James on the second watch, and John on the third watch. Like that's a very possible thing that that's why he brought three people with him. So they, or it could be that all three of them fail all three times, right? Fail, fail, fail. So Peter's going to deny Christ three times, but they're all going to fail to pray three times. So these go in threes as we get through these narratives. All the disciples say they're going to be there for Jesus. All the disciples leave Jesus alone, even before the persecution, and then they fail in their duties to pray. This had to hurt Jesus too. Like as much as taking the sins of the world on your shoulder, you got your very own disciples not able to pray. I wonder if Jesus thought to himself, have I wasted three and a half years of my life? Like really these guys can't even stay awake? And I've been teaching them and training them. I've put so much time into him. The problem is Jesus has probably had God's own heart and he was perfect. So I bet he never thought that. But most of us humans would think, why am I doing this ministry? What's the point? I mean, it's not doing any good. But I don't think Jesus, there's no evidence. There's nothing biblical that says he ever thought a thought like that, which makes him somebody that I want to, I adore. Like, I just don't think Jesus went there. But he'd, you'd think he'd be tempted to at the very least. Um, he went away to pray. He's praying privately. So Jesus models a different kind of prayer here. He's taught the disciples how to pray in Matthew. Here he's teaching them that sometimes prayer can be alone. If you got things to talk about God about alone, you got, I think that's just Jesus modeling different ways and times and, and ways to prayer. But this one's a redundant prayer. He says the same words, verse 44. He's praying the same thing over and over and over again. Why, if there's power in prayer, do we need to pray things more than once? And Jesus' answer is, let me just show you that I do it anyways. <laughs> like, each of those prayers gets God closer, gets Jesus and his will aligned with God the Father's will. And I think this is tough for people because they think, well, isn't God perfect and isn't Jesus perfect? Jesus is still incarnate. So part of his perfection is he does things right in an incarnate body. And so the disciples get to see that this is how you win a spiritual battle, but they don't remember it until after the resurrection. But they're like, oh yeah, that's right. Jesus prayed and he prayed without ceasing. Jesus prayed and he prayed privately. Jesus prayed and he prayed with us, the disciples. Jesus asked us to pray with him and he got, gathered people to do prayer with him. Oh, oh, that's right. Jesus, you know, would lay on the ground and pray, but other times he was sitting up and pray. So it must not be the position that matters. But all of these things are things the disciples remembered. So either Jesus' perfect God is modeling this for the disciples or Jesus' perfect God has willfully incarnated himself into a limited human body and has to be perfect all the way to the end. And prayer is part of what perfects. So this is a, the third time. A couple of huge lessons on prayer here. And again, this is how do, you, how do you blast through this? Number one, verse 37 and 38, don't isolate yourself. If you've got something heavy that you need prayer for, bring it up with people, especially brothers and sisters in the faith, and get other people to pray with you. And again, remembering this, knowing that Jesus resurrected and showed us a perfect path on how to live. Number two, I, I think he, you don't see Jesus bringing the women along for this. And some people make that into this big sexist thing. But I think brothers praying with brothers is appropriate. Sisters praying with sisters is appropriate, right? It takes that, the, the, uh, a, a romantic relationship just out of the equation altogether. I don't think this is a slight against Mary 
or Martha or any of the women he's been with recently. This is just that brothers pray with brothers. So he calls Peter, James, and John to pray with him. When we're defeated, we're usually isolated. And when we pray with people, that's a, a way to, to, to be victorious in this. He aligns his prayer with the will of the Father, verse 39, verse 42. He submits to God's will, even though he is God. And that's because our flesh is weak. Our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. So even Jesus had to deal with the flesh. Even Jesus got tired and slept. Even Jesus got hungry and ate. Even Jesus got weary and oppressed of the soul and had to pray. It's simply the spiritual action that's as natural to the flesh as eating and drinking and sleeping. So that limitation of the flesh, Jesus shows us how to do it. You know, and then keeping at it, just that persistence in prayer. Verse 39, verse 42, verse 44. Jesus prays three times over and over and over. And each of those times was an entire watch of the night. He's praying this continually. We pray until we're changed. We don't pray to change God. But until our heart is at the place where we're ready to go. And Jesus stays silent before the high priest and before uh, Pontius Pilate because his heart was in the right place. He's ready to go. The battle for the cross gets won in the garden, not at the cross. It's just this complete preparation that Jesus is doing. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation, verse 41. Jesus knows they're going to fall into temptation. He just told them they're going to fall into temptation. So why? So they can remember all this. There's victory in the Spirit, and it starts with victory in prayer. It starts, frankly, when it's easy. It's easy to pray. So... Prayer costs nothing. It really doesn't take much out of it other than time. I can even do other things and just do prayers as I go through other things. But it unlocks a spiritual life when we don't fall asleep, when we keep ourselves active in prayer. And he's letting them know that their failure is not preordained. It's, it's not fate, right? And I think that's that idea of watch and pray lest you enter temptation. We don't get tempted just because it happens. We get tempted because we've failed to pray. And those situations can happen. So they use every tool to win spiritually, and we should be using every tool we have spiritually to win too. The importance of prayer is huge. If Jesus himself had to pray, then we do too. And when P Peter loses his spiritual battle coming up, he's going to remember this was where he started to lose that battle. In contrast to Jesus. Exodus 33:13. Now therefore I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I might know you and I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. That was Moses' prayer. Like, I'm praying so that I'm changed, Lord. Get my heart fixed. Get it to where it's like you. So number one, we've all sinned. Number two, accept Jesus' love. Number three, watch and pray. Pray without ceasing before the trials. Be praying. So I think that's a broader definition than just a simple prayer of salvation, right? We've all sinned. Accept Jesus' love is kind of that beginning of salvation. But then watch and pray is a command of Jesus to give. Be praying. Be prayerful. Verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you sleep, still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In verse 40, Jesus says, What? There's an exasperation there. I was looking for the exasperation here, but in the Greek, it's just not here. Verse 45, Jesus' tone has totally changed. Let me, let me give this to you in the Greek. The are you still sleeping and resting? In the Greek is sleep, remain, sleep and rest. 
Like this is a horrible translation, at least in mine, you guys might have better versions, but it's not an exasperated, are you still sleeping? It's not that at all. It's sleep, remain, sleep and rest. It's like, it's like a parent looking over their kid when they're sleeping in the bed. He comes up and all the disciples are sleeping and he just says, you guys sleep. You need your rest. It's almost like there's a Selah here, a pause after the beginning of verse 45. Rest, sleep and rest. You guys need your rest. And he's just watching over them. Sleep, remain sleeping and rest. Again, Jesus' heart has changed at some level. And that's a tough statement to make theologically because people want this defined rule. God never changes. But something's changed between here and the last time Jesus saw the disciples. He's just realizing these guys just need, they need, they got a struggle coming. And he just wants the best for them. And he's done with his praying. His heart's adjusted. It's not an accusation. It's more like a mother watching her children sleep. This is the moment where Jesus maybe started to pray for them. You know, one by one. Dear Lord, help Peter. Peter's going to help him to remember when the cock crows. Dear Lord, help James deal with his brother John. You know, how those two get along. And be this. Lord, be with Matthew. Help him to remember every word. He's going to want to write this down. Help him to remember it. And, and you just see this sleep, keep resting. And you think, I think of this image as, as the good Lord watching over his flock. Be with these, be with these men. They're going to change the world. They don't even know it yet, Lord. But give them strength. After he's lost Judas to his own will, he's praying for these 11 guys to keep their will in line with God. Then the word behold, that's a word that would be like the wake-up call. That's the alarm clock going off. Behold, guys, look. And he's waking them up. And they wake up because now there's trouble. That's the wrong time to wake up as believers. We shouldn't wake up when the trouble arrives. We should have been watching and waiting well beforehand. Right? Our preparation, for, we should expect that there will be trials and we pray for them before they ever happen. So when they do, you're like, oh, here we go, another trial, another idiot lined up in my life. Thanks, Lord. Appreciate it. I'm going to learn from this one again. Help me to do it right this time. Son of man, my betrayer. It's interesting that Jesus takes the second person with the title son of man. Do you see that? And then he says, my betrayer, moving to the first person. I think this... Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time Jesus has conflated the Son of Man reference in this, in this, is that the second person as someone other? No, the second person is you. So he's saying the third person and then moving to the first person. I think this is the first time he kind of does that in one sentence. He conflates them. Uh, so it's, it's an indirect claim to deity again. I am the Son of Man. And, and that sentence kind of shows that. He says, let's be going. The Greek word there is, to go somewhere, it doesn't imply running or rushing or getting the heck away from the mob. It implies let's get on with this business in front of us. So let's get going. Let us be going. And the going here is to go off to the battles that are, that are ready to happen. Let's go. Jesus then is in complete control here and there's no surprises. And if Matthew's recording this word for word accurate, the prayer has equipped Jesus and readied him to even lay in claims to deity as he's in a very hostile, high-stress situation. He's still putting in claims to deity, right? So the point here is that there are going to be trials. Jesus has already taught them that. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated, all of you, for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He's already taught them there's going to be trials. Now there's trials, and that's just part of how it goes. So point number three, pray without ceasing. But we could add 
before the trials come. Like pray without ceasing and the trials are coming and understand that idea. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 with a great multitude of swords and clubs. They don't give a number here. I wish they did. But a great multitude is, is a larger term than the multitude that welcomed to Jerusalem. It was just the multitudes when he came into Jerusalem. Crowds of people. Now it's a great multitude. See that shift? Like, so I'm imagining hundreds, if not thousands of people were all marching out to Gethsemane to see this guy go down. It's amazing how people love to see a hanging. Right? The crowds come out for violence and punishment. Why? What's the passion to get this guy killed? But the crowd has shifted here. So great multitudes with swords and clubs. They're armed to fight. Who do they think they're going after? And they came from the, they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, verse 48, his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whoever, whoever I kiss, he's the one, seize him immediately went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then he came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Behold Jesus. <laughs> this behold here is, I think, for the reader, because this is coming from the narrative. It's just interesting. One behold is, Behold, everyone's here. It's kind of Jesus talking to the disciples. But the behold in this is, Behold Judas, verse 47. That's a behold for you and me. Whoever's reading this book is supposed to notice who just walked up. Look, you're supposed to wake up. If even one of Jesus' disciples can do this, we can too. Look, Judas, one of the 12, it's emphasized. One of Jesus' own came with the multitude. So if that happens to him, man, we, should, we all sin. God's given us a way out. Then you got this idea of um, <laughs> pray, be on the watch before the trials come. And, but look at this. One of the 12 is a problem. Not only did 11 disciples fall asleep, but one of those disciples was actually out doing sin. If you're out doing sin, you're definitely not on your way to winning spiritual battles. You're already losing them. So here's Judas. They come ready for hostility. They got swords and clubs. Uh, clubs are an interesting weapon because they don't kill right away. They beat before they kill. They pulp before they cut. Verse 49, greetings rabbi is there. Um, in the, he, the use of that phrase is kind of an emphatic, joy-filled greetings rabbi. I thought that was an interesting tone when I looked it up. Like it's a greetings rabbi. Hello, how are you? In context, he's then joyfully st- saying rabbi, but he doesn't mean it. He's insincere. He's acting. He's a hypocrite. So this joyful exuberance around Jesus is not exactly faithfulness to Jesus. It's a false relationship or using the Lord's name in vain. I think the love of money, what, you know, whatever motivated Judas, creates false Christian believers. So why is Judas faking it? Why does he call Jesus rabbi, but he's not devoted to Jesus and to doing what Jesus called him to do? Why would Judas be acting like this? He could have just gone and pointed at Jesus and said, that's the guy. But it's like Judas is trying to make, pretend that he likes Jesus. So what? He doesn't lose his friends? Because he's in a bad spot. He's too Christian to get along with the world, but he's too worldly to get along with the Christians. So he puts on an act for one while helping the other. 
this is a horrible position to be in. Like, I think it's better to just not be Christian. Don't call yourself Christian. Don't pretend to be Christian if you don't want to do Christian. So Judas is in this tortured position where, but it's absolutely real. And, it, and people do this. Why pretend to love Jesus and be rejected by the world and then not love him and be rejected by Jesus? You're getting rejected by both at the end of the day. So here's a lesson. Judas goes from godly to pathetic in a few moments. And a few decisions. It happened so fast. It happened within a day. He could have been one of the 12 forever and now he's just Judas, the betrayer, forever. Hypocrisy is even worse than just being a sinner. I, I, know, I think that's an important point. Jesus actually prays for the ignorant, right? Luke records John, or Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes throwing dice. God himself prays and hopes for the absolute complete sinner to repent, but he doesn't do that for hypocrites because they already know that they're not ignorant. So when he says, friend, why have you come? Uh, Jesus uses the same friend that we saw back in Matthew 20, like he uses the same heteros, which is a Greek word that means like, hey, pal, right? He doesn't call him Judas or friend. Like it's not friend like my brother because they use brother when they, they want to use that word. He says, hey, friend, right? So Judas comes up with this overly affectionate term. Jesus responds with an underly affectionate term. Like, you're on the boundary right now. So when he says, hey, friend, Matthew 20, verse 30, 20, 13, he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work for the usual wage? Remember that was the landowner telling the, the disobedient servant, hey, friend, I haven't, what did I do to you? Didn't you agree for the talent that I was going to pay and now you've gotten your talent? You've been treated fairly. And then he used it in Matthew 22 where he said, Friend, he asked, how is that that you're here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Jesus used that term then too. In the same way that I think Jesus prepares the 11 disciples to remember all of this later, he's preparing Judas to remember all this too. Judas is going to remember those two parables where the word friend got used. It's a pretty unique word. Hey, pal. And so it's when Jesus uses that kind of unique language in the wedding parable and in the talent parable, and then he uses the same word with Judas, I think that triggered that memory for Judas. Wait, I'm the guy that showed up to the wedding without a garment. I'm not covered in the blood. I haven't been with Jesus. Why would Jesus welcome me to the feast? And Jesus uses that same distancing word with Judas here. Hey, friend, hey pal, I don't know you. Who are you? Why did you come? Why are you here? Really interesting thing because his disciples would have, he was accustomed to going to Gethsemane. He went to Gethsemane all the time. He would have, over three and a half years, Judas would have been praying at Gethsemane every Passover with Jesus. Why are, now he's like, why have you come? So again, that, the tone there is really, the key word is friend, which has been used in Matthew two other times. Uh, the kiss here is just where we, now we get the phrase Judas's kiss. It's just sad. You know, this overly gushing happiness but on the inside is this tortured soul. And this is what false Christians do. This is the hypocrisy of false Christian. The sicker the inside is, the more happy-go-lucky the outside needs to look. Because they, they can't let anybody see that on the inside they're a mess. However, Judas kissing Jesus, that's like in our culture, that's weird. In the first century, that wasn't weird at all. That was a typical greeting that you gave to, other, to friends and people you knew. 
and you kissed him on both cheeks usually. Kiss, kiss. In some cultures, they still do that. It says they took him, the Greek word there is krateo, to have power over somebody, not to take them away like geographically, but to take the ability for them to move away. So they put Jesus in handcuffs. They took him. Uh, verse 51, and suddenly one of those men who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. One thought on verse 41, I just like Matthew's grace. He doesn't name Peter when Peter screws up that much. I just think that's really kind. Um, the other disciples in the other gospels name Peter readily. <laughs> um, but Matthew doesn't, which tells you something about Matthew's personality. It's just one of the disciples, because you know what? All have sinned. And it's not just Peter that was the problem here. And I think from Matthew's perspective, the way he's writing this is like that. John, however, was more competitive with Peter, and he just names him. It was Peter that cut off the ear. And John was written after Matthew, so likely John read Matthew, and, and John was probably like, why don't we name Peter? Like, it helps to name Peter. So when he wrote his gospel account, he names Peter, and it's probably a response to the fact that Matthew, it's just one of the disciples did it. But Jesus said to him, verse 52, put your sword in its place. What's the place of a sword? In a sheath on the hip. You say, why is Peter carrying a sword in the first place? Because there were brigands on the road. Because when they killed something to eat it, they had to use a knife. Like a sword was more than just a weapon of war to people in the first century. It was like, it was like carrying a jackknife. It was a tool they used for everything. You want to go chop lumber? You had your sword at your side. It's the tool that you use for day-to-day -day life, but when you use it against people, it becomes a problem. Put it back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I can't, cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Already failing in prayer, Peter now loses his temper. Catch the progression with Peter and how it contrasts with Jesus. Jesus prays all night, and now he has peace. Peter sleeps all night, and now he has chaos. Right, And it's just building against Peter in one direction and for Jesus in the other. But Peter's lost context. He draws his sword. Uh, the mob is important here. These aren't Roman soldiers. I think sometimes in the movies they have this be a Roman soldier gets his ear cut off. And I don't know if they get that from other Gospels or not. Well, like Look that up for me and find out. Um, but it just says there's a mob here. That would have just been a kind of a hired crew of people. Um, but you cut off a Roman ear and you're probably going to get killed. Um, so, or by Jesus putting the ear back on, which like like supernatural super glue. But then maybe there's nothing to accuse Peter of because the, the, the ear's been replaced. I don't know. Um, I think that's really off task. So verse 53. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me? So it's, okay, I'm going to stay off task. I think it's kind of cool that a fisherman could whip out a sword and cut off an ear. Think of how accurate that is. Like, Peter's got some skill with a sword. And these guys had clubs and swords of their own, so the fact that he's able to take an ear off, that's actually, like, just respect for Peter, just for a moment, totally off track, but respect for Peter. Um, <laughs> I think that's really impressive. It's it's a little flashy moment, but it does make a mess for Jesus to clean up. Even as believers, when we do things that are kind of impressive, if it's done the wrong way or against God's will, it's still a mess that Jesus has to clean up. So I just thought that was a nice thought. How many beads of Christians over 2,000 years fit this description? Like, right? 
We did this, the Spanish Inquisition, but now that's a mess God has to clean up. We created a church that you know, has people dancing in the aisles, but now that creates a, a, an image that people have to deal with before they come into the faith. So how many things do we do as Christians that we think are good in defense of Jesus, but they're actually just a mess that God has to clean up? So Lord, help me to not do that. Help me to think before I act so I'm not making more messes than I clean up myself. And help me honor God in my actions, even if my flesh thinks they might be the right thing to do. And help me to be watchful and in prayer so that doesn't happen. Verse 53, or do you think? The fighting implies that we think God is powerless. I thought that was such a... When Jesus says this, he's still teaching. Do you think that I can't now do this? Do you doubt my power? When we're in a trial or we feel like God's not there, not looking or not listening, and making us struggle... Do we think God couldn't stop that thing in an instant if he wanted to? Think about like medical health situations. We often pray for health and pray for medical situations. When we pray for those situations, do we think God couldn't just end that in two seconds? You know, even like an, an amputee, do we not think God could regrow an arm if he wanted to? So when these trials happen, spiritually speaking, as we move forward in our salvation, we have to understand that God can do things instantly. The 12 legions of angels, he's using Roman terms. A legion is 6,000 foot soldiers and 700 horsemen. So 6,700 people. Um, in 2 Kings 19, one angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. So what would 6,700 angels be capable of? Right? So when Jesus brings this up, he's essentially saying, God has unlimited power and control and it could happen in an instant if I wanted it to. Don't you understand, Peter, what's happening right now is because I want you in the situation. And that situation is leading to Peter's fall so Peter understands what humility is. Whoa, like I could just end right there, but I want to finish the chapter. Like I just, that's such a huge point. Like every struggle I go through, I'm in it because God wants me in it. Well, how can a good God have bad things happen? Because he wants me to humble myself before his will. And ultimately, nothing that happens to human is eternally consequential. Other than the, the humility we have before God and the degree to which we serve him with our will. And we give it to him. So we take great care in choosing what we get upset about, choosing when we pull out the sword, choosing when we bicker with people. The scriptures are there. It's verse 56 too. This is all God's plan. And it all works out. And Jesus trusts these things, God's promises, not the circumstance. The situation is not the end story. It's simply a chapter. So what struggle must we go through to get closer to God? Every sacrifice that Moses gave from Moses all the way to Jesus, every single sacrifice was a covering for sin, but it was temporary. It was a temporary covering. And to atone for sin, whatever that sacrifice is, has to be sinless and it has to be eternal, but it has to be sacrificed. So Peter's not seeing that context right now. He's not seeing that Jesus is sinless and eternal at the same time. He believes in Jesus, but he doesn't believe Jesus. That sacrifice also had to be a substitute for a human family. It had to be human to replace or substitute for other humans. So it had to be a human, sinless, eternal sacrifice to account for other humans for all of eternity and not be a, a temporary covering for sin. 
If that sacrifice is forced to do it, then it's not a gift. It has to be freely given. Peter, you want to fight what's happening right now? I want to do this freely and willingly. It has to be this way. I have to go freely. And he'll take the punishment. He doesn't get the punishment. This attitude of Jesus saying, we're not going to, be, we're not going to fight this, Peter. It's because Jesus understands what's going on here. God's plan is to go forward regardless of the, the trials, and he's still tending to, Jesus, or to Peter's heart. Jesus is still teaching Peter, even now. Peter, like, get this. And Peter's going to go through more trials after the resurrection, and he's going to successfully have victory in them because he prays, he knows he's fallen short, he accepts God's love, he's praying before the trials, and then point number four, he knows how to trust in God's power, and he doesn't want to make more messes. Right? This lesson goes for a long time with Peter and it changes the world. If it's as possible, as much as it depends on you, live peacefully with all men. Stop making messes. And Peter buys that. Verse 55, In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat with you, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you didn't seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This is where they take off. Jesus said. <laughs> it's interesting. Like one question when you just read Matthew is, wait, how did Jesus get a chance to talk? Judas kisses him. The mob takes him. You'd think it would just be chaos. How did Jesus get a chance to speak to the crowd? And he leaves this little detail out. When John writes his gospel, he adds in what happened in between that gave Jesus a chance to speak because they asked if he was the Messiah and he said, I am. And it blew the crowd away with power and they fell down. It came out like, I am, like God just spoke. And it was a weird moment, right? And that gave silence where Jesus could talk. Matthew just leaves that out, I think, because it's not core to what he's trying to say right now. Right? He's trying to show that he's teaching the disciples that there's a progression. And that's why we have multiple Gospels, is John's doing totally something different when he's telling this story. But it's still a moment that's like, okay, Jesus said to the multitudes, that's where he got the chance to say it. And what he's saying here is what Matthew focuses on. Jesus points out the hypocrisy of what's going on. He's been openly down at the temple the last two and a half days. Like, he's been there. There's no, been no guile with him. He hasn't hidden anything. So he's pointing out his innocence to the crowd. I haven't hidden and sneaked. I'm not some ninja in a basement somewhere waiting to pounce. He asks in verse 55, and then he answers his own question in verse 56. Like he's just going to help them out because they're all stunned in silence right now. The reason he gives is because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The reason isn't, he's not accusing them here, but there's this idea of Jesus fulfilling scripture that is persistent through the book of Matthew. So when Jesus again points us to the word of God, we'll get to it. But one of the questions is, okay, what scriptures are you talking about? What prophecy just got fulfilled? Because Matthew's trying to get us to notice again and again and again, everything that happened fulfilled prophecy perfectly. So uh, just looking at the Messiah, the Messiah had to be a Hebrew back in Genesis 22, had to be from the tribe of Judah back in Genesis 49 had to be a son of David, 2 Samuel 7. We just did that in the evening Bible study. Had to come from a virgin, right, uh, in Isaiah 7, 14. All of that, Matthew chapter 1. 
right? He's just summing up what was going on, right? He had to come from Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. It had to be announced by the voice of another, Isaiah 40, verse 3. I'm saying these fast, but I know that podcasters can pause it and do it. But this is a great Bible study, right? He, the Messiah had to live in Galilee, had to be born in Bethlehem, mid-Israel, had to come out of Egypt, not even in the country, and he had to live in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. How does that happen? Like, that alone is mixed up. Matthew deals with all of that in the first couple chapters of the book. And now we, we read that, um, I would just, Jesus throughout the book of Matthew keeps saying, go read, go read, go read. And nearly every chapter of Matthew points us back to the Old Testament. Scriptures of the prophets in this chapter alone, verse 14, verse 23, verse 28, verse 31, and verse 56 keeps pointing us to the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures. How do Christians get around today and not even know what the scriptures say? How do you defend your faith when you haven't even read them? This is something we got. This is what we're in this Bible study. This is what we're fixing. <laughs> we will know the word of God and we will, you know, bear with me for five, 10 years. We will get through every single word of it and we will be different when we do. And that's what Matthew's trying to show his disciples. Be in the word and it will give you what you need in these situations. Go read it. And he commands them to go read it. Over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament alone are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's more prophecies in the Old Testament about the second coming than there is about the first coming. And we've got over 300 of them already fulfilled in the first coming. Like it's stunning how rich the Old Testament is and it's there. Isaiah 42 taunts people and says, Behold, the former things have come to pass and, th and new things I declare before they spring forth on the earth, I tell you them. God, like no other God, no other false God does this. God actually says, I'm legit because I tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Just like Jesus does. That's what legitimizes God over Allah and Buddha and Confucius and any other religious leader, right? The Bhagavad Gita does not, is not filled with hundreds of prophecies that have come true. Only the Bible does that, right? There really isn't a prophetic section of the Quran. Like, it's really minimal. Like, they don't, they don't even commit to that, right? Confucius just gives you lots of little words of wisdom to live by. But there's not really any prophecy there. Right? So that the disciples are being taught to fail, but to remember these things and grow towards humility and strength of faith. Here's another question as this mob comes and takes Jesus away. I wonder if Saul or Paul himself is in this crowd. I wonder as one of the underling people in the temple, but one of those rising stars, maybe Paul even led this crowd over there. It doesn't say, and Matthew doesn't give those names, but Paul's going to remember Jesus' power. So when Jesus shows up to him on the road to Emmaus, he says, why are you persecuting me? Paul actually knows who me is. So he's, at some point, Paul is watching Jesus. And I wonder if this is that first scene where Paul would be in that crowd or even at the head of this mob. Either way, the disciples forsook him and fled. So they weren't there to take stock. And this prepares, and this failure prepares them for spiritual lives, Right? once you've failed, you realize that you need God's forgiveness. And God's forgiveness starts the whole pattern. So Jesus faces the Sanhedrin. Again, we could be stopping here, but I really want to finish the chapter. So is everybody still good? You're all with me? Okay. 57. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, 
where the scribes and the elders were assembled, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And then he went in and sat with the servants to the end. So I think that 58, Matthew adds that to explain how he knows what happened. Right? So all the disciples fled, but like, how does he know what happened in verse 57? So Peter kind of cites his source in verse 58. I got this from Peter. Peter's the one that told me this. Which is why I say, I think that Peter and Matthew were probably good friends. That's why he left his name out before. Right? But he puts his name in here. You know, and I, I think that like, there's just a grace between, a friendship between those guys that you get little hints at. Matthew skips a pre-trial with, uh, with Annas, which we see in John chapter 18. Uh, Matthew goes right to the seeing Caiaphas. And so some people say that's an error in the Bible. Why does one gospel say he went to Caiaphas and one gospel sent to Annas? If you want to see the President of the United States, you will talk to people before you get to the President of the United States. You'll talk with the Secretary of, of, of whatever before you do that. The, the, how, the Chief of the House will interview you before you get to the President. In fact, if you want to see the President, you're probably going to go through multiple interviews. If you want to see the High Priest of all, the entire religion of the Jews, you are going to have, be interviewed by some people before you get there. John simply includes Annas, um, who was, I think, is he the father-in-law of Caiaphas? He's just part of Caiaphas's um, household, and he's, um, he's related to Caiaphas, I'll say that much. You guys can look up how he was related. Um, but likely, the meeting with Annas happens at night, like before the sun's come up, and the meeting with Caiaphas then is the first order of business in the morning. Because remember, Jesus was praying through the night, and the mob comes, probably with some torches, because the sun's just coming up, and we're now on the day of sacrifice as we do this. So Caiaphas would have started the day in the morning. This would have been the uh, first thing there. Um, Jewish law pro prohibits nighttime trials. You can't try somebody when the sun's not up. So the sun is up by the time you see Caiaphas, but he could have interviewed with Annas before the sun came up. So just chronology stuff. Now the chief priest, verse 59, the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This is important, but found none. Wait a second. If I'm going to bear false testimony, didn't you just find false testimony? Well, here's what Jews would do in, in the court. You had to have two witnesses say the same thing, but they couldn't be in the court at the same time. So you had to bring one person in and give an account of events, and then a second person came in, gave their account of the events, and those accounts had to match. So they keep doing this, and maybe the Holy Spirit, you'd think they would just talk outside before they come in, like they get their stories straight. But they're going like through this whole trial and they can't find two stories to match. Why is that? Because Jesus was really careful with his language. He didn't say things that, that were going to get him where he, in, a bad, in hot water before he wanted to be in hot water. So even though many false witnesses came forward, verse 60, they found none. So Matthew says the same thing twice here, I think, to emphasize it. Um, and again, read this as Matthew saying Jesus was pure and he was spotless. And they tried to find fault and they couldn't find it. So you could argue that the priests inspected him with the questioning in the temple over the last few days. Or you could argue the priests inspected him formally under a trial that was done under the law and they still can't find anything wrong with him. So there's a ton of illegalities to this trial. They're emphasized by Luke, the historian. This trial was breaking every Jewish rule about trials. And, that, and when we get to Luke, we'll kind of go through all that. John emphasizes a bunch of things. For instance, it says there were many false witnesses. If you're a false witness under Jewish law, they should be killed. Right? 
so why aren't there a bunch of killings right now? There, these, these all should be people that get slaughtered, and there's no record of any kind of slaughter here. And if this is a trial under the law, that should be, they should be held accountable to the law. So this is probably where the, the pre-trial with Annas, those people weren't in an actual court. So this is, you know, again, Jewish legalistic thinking. So they didn't bring them forward with Caiaphas, right? Because they'd already tried with Annas. So they're, they're testing these people because they're trying to convict Jesus. This is a false trial. This is a show trial, right? They're just putting on a show, but the conclusion's already decided. So there's no record of consequence. There's just a bunch of things here. Suppose, they're supposed to be interviewed privately, and in this verse it says they came together. That, that shouldn't happen. So they're just breaking rule after rule after rule. Uh, Matthew de-emphasizes all of that, I think because Matthew is treating this not as a trial like Luke and John do. He's treating it as an inspection of the lamb. They're inspecting the lamb trying to find faults. Because Matthew's thinking of prophecy, and from a Hebrew mindset, he is the Lamb of God, and Matthew treats him that way. So Matthew, I think, isn't worried about the, the legality of a criminal trial because Jesus isn't a criminal. This is an inspection of a sacrifice. And this is all legal. When you inspect a sacrifice, you just try to find fault any way you can. So I think, at least for me, that fits with what Matthew's doing. But at last, two witnesses came forward. Again, that's illegal. And said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Okay, they're lying. This is also false witness. He actually said, John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, I'm able to destroy the temple. So they're absolutely lying about what Jesus said. Again, Jesus was careful with his words. So Jesus could have defended himself and said, I didn't say that. I never said that. I said, you destroy the temple and I'll raise it back up. You're saying that I was claiming I could destroy the temple and raise it back up. But Jesus doesn't even get into it. He doesn't argue because he's not in a criminal trial. He's in an inspection of the lamb trial. So the high priest arose, verse 62. Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered him and said, <laughs> I like how the high priest answered and said, like, Jesus' silent was an argument. You don't have to testify against yourself. So he stays silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus seems to have waited for verse 63 to happen. He doesn't speak until that happens. So what's so significant about that? So I think it's that Jesus is perfect even in his respect for the existing priesthood. He's perfect in it. And one of the things under tradition that a high priest could do is they could command someone to talk in the way that we just see in verse 63. So he is innocent of all this. He can defend himself, but he's, he's like a lamb being led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. You had that one memorized, didn't you, Tom? The Isaiah 53, 7? No. Oh, I, I would think that that's an evangelist one. Jesus opened not his mouth. It was predicted that that would happen. And Matthew's emphasizing he didn't open his mouth until he had to. So when the official leader of the Jews meets the spiritual leader of humanity, we have the epic climax of conflict in the book of Matthew. This is the conflict. Caiaphas versus Jesus. False high priest with the real high priest. Right? Who's going to win this? And the high priest has, by tradition, a legal right 
to ask a question. And when he says it this way, it has eternal consequences. So he's frustrated that he won't answer. And he says, I put you under oath by the living God. If Jesus doesn't answer his eternal salvations in question, like he will, he is damned if he doesn't do this. He would have a blemish and a sin. Again, that's not biblical. It's just Jewish tradition. But Jesus honors the tradition. And I put you under oath, exarchizo, is a forced oath. And this is the only time we see it anywhere in the Bible. So it's not a biblical concept. Um, again, total um, hours of nonsense with the courtroom. This question got him to stand up. Now, I got some stuff on Caiaphas. They, in 1900, they did dig up a reliquary, not a, a, an ossuary, which had a bunch of bones in it, and it was titled Caiaphas. And so they found the bones of about 30 bodies. A couple of them were older, and people got all excited about it. Um, Roman records record that Caiaphas actually died at sea. He was being called to answer for this situation. And the Tiberius Caesar called Caiaphas to Rome, and he died in the trip. And I have, this comes from the Orthodox Church, has all these Roman records. And they have this entire record where Mary Magdalene got upset about the crucifixion of Jesus, went to Rome, and made her case before the Caesar saying this was an unjust killing in the Roman Empire. Tiberius was impressed with her case. He was impressed that she made this case. Um, and then, uh, and so there's this record. I like this. I know it takes a little time, but they dispensed wrongful judgment against Jesus, son of Mary. This is Mary Magdalene's words before Caesar. Jesus performed great signs and prodigies among the people. He granted the blind the recovery of sight. He raised the dead. He cleansed lepers. He expels demons with a word. Simply put, he cured every disease. What a great summary of the gospel, right? Mary's just laying it out. The chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas, out of jealousy and malice, delivered him up to Pilate. That was Mary's take. It got the attention of the entire Roman Empire. She then submitted this in writing to the Roman Emperor, which is why the Orthodox Church has the records. It was the official church before the split of the Roman Empire. So it's written records in their, in their annals. It's called the Synaxarses, is the book that it's in, or, or these records of things. And so she submitted her complaint in writing to Caesar. It was recorded. It was logged. And it is, uh, it, we can still now read it. Caiaphas then died on a ship journey. The soldier in charge of the ship was Logodote, who also kept ship's logs and journals. This is what he wrote about what happened to Caiaphas. He, he suddenly felt a sharp pang in his abdomen, and then his bowels split open on the deck, and his tongue jutted out of his mouth in the length of a span. Caiaphas did not have a happy ending. <laughs> like, this happens within a fairly short amount of time. Uh, they tossed him overboard, so his body should be at sea. Uh, Annas did make it to Rome, and he was whipped exactly like Jesus was whipped. Then they took an antelope skin and wrapped him in it, and then they put it out in the sun until he died. So the death of Annas was brutal in a true Roman fashion. They knew how to kill people. So both Annas and Caiaphas were um, killed, arguably because of the misconduct that they had in this case with Jesus. They, they broke the law when they did this, and he was convicted unjustly. No one was called in his defense, and, and they, they shouldn't have done that. So what they're doing here is driven by a passion to kill Jesus. They want this guy gone. And they're willing to break rules to do it. 
politically, we see people that are so passionate about their politics, they're willing to break the rules to get what they want. And it's just the history of sin, like, which we're not studying. We're going to study the history of the Lord. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, it is as you said. I love how he does this. Like some people that irritates him because he's, but Caiaphas just, it just came out of your mouth. It's what you said. So again, he's not saying it, which means he's being convicted, though he did not convict himself, right? It's as you said. Or you could say that that is absolutely convicting himself, right? He just said it and he says, like you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He already called himself the Son of Man again and again and again. Like you can't read Matthew and not catch that that is a self-referential thing. And he's saying that he'll be at the right hand of the power. The power is a way that first century Jews, frankly, when he says the power, that's a really historically relevant <coughs> turn of phrase because it was used in the first century instead of saying God or Yahweh, they would say the power. And it was a way that they could speak the name of God without saying it. So I'm going to be with the power coming on the clouds of heaven. Like you're going to see me coming. Um, as God. So in case the it is as you said didn't work, then Jesus finishes verse 64. And, and at this point, absolutely, he's called himself God, right? And, it, and he will be the God that returns at the second coming. So that sentence coming there, being at the right hand of power, means he will be the arm of power. And, and he will be the force or the, the weapon of God at the second coming. Then the high priest tore his clothes, which tells us the high priest understood that sentence just like we understand that sentence. We just think Jesus is God, so it's not a lie. But the high priest doesn't think Jesus is God, so it's complete blasphemy, absolute and complete. So he tears his clothes saying, he has stolen blasphemy. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. So this act of anger and rage <laughs> breaks the law again. This is Caiaphas. This is an absolute disaster. Um, maybe he's not wearing his high priest robes. That's a maybe. But I think if he's showing up in court in the morning, he's wearing those high priest robes. Here's what Leviticus 21.10 says about the high priest robes. He who is the high priest among his brothers, brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who was consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, or tear his clothes. What happens when a high priest tears their clothes? That's a good question. Flip to verse 21, Leviticus 21, verse 21. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near the offer of the offerings made by fire to the Lord. If he has a defect, he shall not come near or offer bread to his God. So in doing this, he's no longer the high priest. He tore his own clothes. He broke the rules. By the law, he's done. While he has uncleanness upon him, this person is cut off from my presence. Leviticus 21, I am the Lord. I love that in Leviticus, again, I am the Lord gets fit right in there where I am is a self-referential statement and the Lord is a secondary statement. Brought right together. In Leviticus, on that passage. Caiaphas at this moment then, according to law, will no longer feel God's presence. He will no longer feel God's support. He's defiled his clothes. Oddly enough, what Jesus said was true and they accused him of blasphemy. When the high priest tears his clothes, that's actual blasphemy denying God's word and then pretending to be high priest when you're not. 
So Caiaphas is actually guilty of blasphemy, and Jesus is not. So there's witnesses to all of this. The crowd of people watching this happen. I wonder if they were aghast at what Jesus said, or if they were aghast that the high priest just tore his robes and gave up his job, and then pretended to be high priest after that. They could have been hearing testimony on the healing of Jesus. They could have had people come in and talk about how they were healed of demons. They could have had people come in and talk about how he stopped the storms. They could have had people that came in and said, this guy prayed all night. He loves the Lord. I know his heart. Character witnesses. They could have had people come in and talk about his prophecy, how he knew the past word of God backwards and forwards. He knew the present and he knew the future. They could have had the woman at the well come in and say, this guy knew all about my life. They could have had testimony after testimony after testimony of God's word, but what they choose to do is tear their clothes and get all mad. Verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, is he deserving death? And then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophecy to us, Christ. Who's the one who struck you? This is total mockery. They're denying who he is. Isaiah 56 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now Peter sat outside the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him saying, you were with Jesus in Galilee. But he denied it before all of them saying, I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you're one of those your speech betrays you meaning he had an accent from Galilee, and then began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Man, just the impact. This is great writing, frankly. Outstanding writing. There's great teachings on just this passage. Each of Peter's denials get more and more adamant. Each of Peter's denials gets further away from Christ. When we're ashamed of Christ, it doesn't matter who asks us that we're associated like, it doesn't matter that it's a little girl, right? Each of Peter's denials is physically further away from the temple. So he's in the, he's in the courtyard in 69, he's in the gateway in 71, and there's no location given in 73, he's lost, right? So each one of these denials gets worse, I think is the point. Verse 74, it says, cursing and swearing, plus I don't know the man. I won't try to replicate that. Peter was a fisherman, he knew how to swear. And they knew how he speak that he was from Galilee. So his speech gave away his geographical location. But in verse 74, his speech betrays his spiritual location. By cursing and swearing, this separates him totally from God's people because God's people watch their tongue. They don't just curse and swear all willy-nilly. So ambassadors are not crude people. They don't use curses. They don't make oaths. They don't call down evil on people and things. That's not how Jesus' ambassadors were to act. So when he curses and swears, he's acting in such a way that distances him from Jesus too. And I think that's cool. It says that Jesus' followers had quite an impression on people. They were good people. And that language, instead of wooing people to holiness, is now affirming his crudeness and his sin. It's safe to assume that if somebody's cursing and swearing a lot, they're not following Jesus very closely because their tongues are just all over the place. Verse 74, then he began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So he wept out and went out and wept bitterly. Uh, again, just the impact on Peter here. Judas is selfish. We don't see any remorse for his sin. Completely apostate. Then he was grieving and he committed suicide. But the lack of sorrow did not lead him to repentance. With Peter, he's an unselfish person. I'll be with you always, Jesus. When he catches his own sin, he weeps bitterly and realizes he's backslidden. And then he re he's redeemed and has a lifetime of victories for Christ. His sorrow led him to repentance. See the contrast between Judas and Peter? And I think that's what Matthew's contrasting these two people that deny Christ, but one of them is redeemed and one of them is damned. What's the difference? The difference is that people like Judas trying to climb ladders to please people, they find that when you get to the top of the ladder, it's a precarious position. You got to please everybody or the ladder tips. With Jesus, people that rest in Jesus, we have a big, firm foundation. We don't fall off of it. There's nowhere to go, right? And Peter's realizing that he's landing on a foundation and there's actually a foundation underneath him. But it hurts when you hit the concrete, right? He's realizing that this is not a, 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 a like, it, there's this thing. And I love in verse 75, because I think this is what Matthew's been setting up for the whole chapter. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus. He remembered God's words. When we fail in life, returning to what God says is how we get redeemed. And people go, how do I know if I'm saved? Well, do you feel bad when you sin? Yes, but I keep doing it. But you feel bad when you sin. You don't feel self-justified in it. Why? Why do we feel bad when we sin? Because God's made something new in your heart. Fight the sin. And God's given you the tool to do it. We don't like it, so we don't do it. And the weeping and going out and weeping bitterly Peter's a man of great love, so the betrayal and his realization of his own sin had to hurt greatly. We don't want to hurt God's heart. That's the point. But why? <clears throat> when I was trying cigarettes with, with, with Dawn and some punk in the back alley of Medelia, Minnesota, I wasn't worried if I was hurting God's feelings. Now I realize how sad that had to be to look at. Who's this stupid kid trying cigarettes in the back alley? And by the way, there's nothing in the Bible that says don't try cigarettes. But like, why do we fight for that? Right? My heart was so far from God, I didn't care what he thought. The fact that he weeps bitterly means Peter absolutely cared with God, what God thought because Jesus had already planted something in his heart that knew that that was wrong. So point number one, all of sin and fall short of glory of God. Point number two, accept Jesus' love and accept his word. Point number three, pray without ceasing before the trials come and there are trials coming. Point number four, trust in God's power and stop making messes he adds to clean up. Point number five, God uses the broken. He uses this. Remember God's word, weep bitterly, and then repent. And God's going to lift Peter up. The story does not end with Peter here. We will be back in a couple chapters and we'll see what happens next. Peter answers Jesus in verse 33. And this event changes him powerfully. First, he denied Jesus' word. Then he fell asleep on the watch. Then he lost his temper. And now he's weeping bitterly. The end result of sin is not what you think it's going to be. Cutting off an ear can be an awesome moment. But it ends in this bitterness of there. First Peter writes in his own letter, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. I love this. 
Peter knows the lesson he learned, and we can just listen to Peter on that. This is what Peter says. If anybody speaks as the oracles of God, if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you're suffering, it's because God's teaching you. He's training you for something. Jesus submits and Peter fails, but Peter learns to submit and then he gets victory. It sets him up for service to God for the rest of his life. And he totally understands that because he can't go through life saying, I did this, I'm so great. He always has the memory of the rooster crowing and knowing he's not that great. On his own strength, he's a total failure. Good luck with that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for Matthew for recording these events. Um, Lord, we just thank you for your, your gift and your sacrifice. Lord, we know we've sinned and we've fallen short. We get that. Lord, it's hard to not know that. Any degree of self-reflection under your law, we know we've broken it. Lord, we also know you offered a gift and you invite us into your household so that cup of, of wrath can pass. And Lord, we thank you for that gift. There's nothing else more important. Lord, we know that you gave your life on a cross as a propitiation for our sins and covered it so that judgment would pass right over us. So we know that judgment was ours. We know the crushing that that had to be on your spirit to take those sins on yourself that you knew no sin that was to you, how exhausting that was to you. Lord, we know that you stayed awake all night when humanity slept. Lord, we know that you don't hate Peter because of his failure. You actually are preparing Peter in that failure. Lord, for what the enemy means for good, you mean for greatness. And Lord, we just pray for purity in our lives. Help us to fight sin, to, to not just end this story running from little girls in the street, but we end the story reading Peter's epistles and the champion that he was for your name and your glory. Lord, help us to be bold in our faith, unashamed, unapologetic. You say, whoever is ashamed of me, you'll be as, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And Lord, we get the justice in that. So help us to not be ashamed of you, to proclaim your name, put you out in front for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.